The difference between belief and superstition is attitude. Dr. Judy P. Byers, founding director of the Frank and Jane Gabor West Virginia Folklife Center. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. That quote was provided by today's guest, Tyler Chadwell English. He is a West Virginia folklorist who studied at the Frank and Jane Gabor West Virginia Folklife Center, uh, which is part of Fairmont State University where he got an undergrad, and then he went on to get a uh, master's in folklore and museum studies from George Mason University. So this episode is our Halloween special, and goddamn, it is great. I could have listened to Tyler for hours and hours more when he's going to tell us everything, well, an introduction to everything about Appalachian witch lore, which is his specialty. And speaking with my first folklorist made it incredibly apparent how important folklorists will be to the future of this podcast. I want to be talking to these types of people all the time. While Tyler specializes in witch lore, which is perfect for our Halloween episode, I want to speak to people who are specialized in animal lore and plant lore. And is there someone out there who knows everything about um, hunting folktales Uh, I would, you know, anything like this is just going to be so, so exciting and interesting to me. So I will seek that out. And Tyler studied under Judy Byers, who said she would do an episode and just couldn't make it for Halloween. And she specializes in ghost lore. So I hope to have her on. She said perhaps in 2021, um, we could have that podcast. So that's very exciting because while Tyler studied under Judy, Judy studied under Ruth Ann Music, who was a famous um, folklorist in West Virginia um, in the mid-1900s. And you'll hear more about that from Tyler. This podcast is the Halloween special, which is a break from the podcasting road trip. We will be back on the road for the next episode, which is the fifth stop and that is in western Kansas in the chalk beds, a dry and treeless and huge expanse where there was once an ancient ocean. And we are talking with a family-taught fossil hunter who lives in an old church, and they don't even have, well, he converted an old church into their museum and gift shop, and they live on these little outbuildings. And there's no actual address other than a GPS location. So that's a great one. Stay tuned for that. But let's get to witches. So 
I've been debating whether or not to share my own witch story. This episode is PG-13 in vibe, and my witch stories are more on the rated R end. So I was thinking how I could present them to fit this episode appropriately. And my witch experiences um, are more of the femme fatale witch, which we do discuss and does not seem to be as big of a uh, motif in Appalachian witch lore as it is in perhaps some other traditions where the seductress um, is a much has a much larger presence. So almost 10 years ago, I was living in New York, in Brooklyn, and my long-distance, five-year relationship with a girlfriend, very kind and sweet, blonde-haired, kind of all-American girl, was coming to an end, and I'm up in New York, and I start noticing the presence of this black-haired woman who's about 10 years my senior. So while I was about 23, she was probably 33. And so I start seeing her out at clubs and she kind of seems to be circling closer and closer into my into my world. And at the meantime, this long-term relationship comes to an end. And as it does, I go to Europe to visit family and I'm in I'm in communication with the the black-haired new woman and I go to a little occult bookshop in Paris and I am looking through like the tarot decks and there's like an old box of French cartomancy cards and I'm flipping through the cards and it stumbles upon one that has this black-haired gypsy and at the bottom of the image is a coiled snake. And I laugh and I think, aha, this is so much like that black-haired woman back in New York because she has a, has a snake. And I go into the little, you know, it's a snake in her little Brooklyn apartment. And I go and I flip through the booklet of the meanings of the cards. And it says, be wary of a black-haired woman who is kind only on the surface. And I think at the time in my naive boyishness. I think, oh, this is hilarious. Ha ha ha. And we're in communication. I come back to New York um, after this vacation and I immediately want to see her. And we go out and she just, she seems to have this, she speaks about the occult quite often. And she seems to have this clairvoyance where she knows all these things, all this information that, that was not public, you know, it wasn't on social media. She seems to just know this information about me. And so I'm getting some weird vibes, but I'm still pulled in. I'm still pulled in by the lure of this person. And, you know, once in her bed, in the low light, her face in the shadows seems to be like the face of a demon with the snake just across the room. And I'm quite terrified by her. And... I choose not to really see her again. And yet she would just text me every time I was with another woman or um, 
at very odd times in the middle of the night. And I just got a very strange feeling about her. And she had talked about the succubus as something you could do. You could send out in, you know, in the night to someone that, you know, you want to kind of curse. So I just was very weirded out by this person. And some months go by and I meet another older woman who was 20 years my senior. So I'm 24 now and she's about 45. And we go on a date and we end up in her room and on the walls she has all these like horned helmets, these like demonic metal crowns and and helmets, these horned helmets. And I'm kind of creeped out by this. And we start to kiss and she pulls back and she's staring very intensely into me in a very creepy way. And she starts to whisper these strange incantations. You know, and she goes in to kiss my neck and my ear and she's whispering. And my heart is racing and I pull back and I'm saying, hey, what are you saying? Hey, whoa, what, what, what are you saying right now? And I am freaked out. And of course, I don't just get up and go home because there's some part of me that's still pulled into this. So again, I'm scared of this woman and time goes by and I choose not to see her again. And one day I'm heading to the cafe that I always go to in the morning where I would get my croissants, which is nowhere near where this person lived. And she's sitting on a bench and she's just staring down the road at me coming blocks and blocks away. I'm like three blocks away and I can just see this little figure sitting on a bench staring my direction. And as I approach, she says, hello, Philippe. Very, very creepy. And she would send me all sorts of strange images, um, very dark stuff. So clearly there's a pattern starting here. And I start talking about this and I'm thinking about it and I'm weirded out by it. And it comes to the third experience. And um, if you love fairy tales, you'll often find that things happen in threes. And so I go to this herbal shop, this incredible little shop in New York City that's covered in walls of jars. And I, and I meet this, um, this woman who works there and we start talking and we're talking about occult things. And um, she's a jeweler and she has a very powerful presence. And she comes with a friend to visit me at my work, which at the time I was working in a basement restaurant. And she came before there was any um, customers. So she, they just hang, hung out at the bar and we talked about all sorts of stuff. And she had said that she had kind of meditated on my dilemma, which I had told her about. And that she felt that there was some kind of female presence that did not want her around. That was... Um, some kind of wrathful presence. And this pretty really creeped me out. Like, I didn't even really know what she meant. There's some kind of female spirit on me. And so I kind of just laughed this stuff off, again, with this boyish naivete. And the next night, I'm in my room just kind of dabbling in the occult. 
and my roommate is gone and I have the lights off and the candles on and I have a Tibetan singing bowl which I fill with water and I'm doing something called scrying which is a divination practice which uh, I believe Nostradamus would do where you fill a bowl with water and in a very low light situation with just candles to create a reflection you stare into the bowl of water and you supposedly will see images in the water or visions and you know you can divine things and so I'm sitting there looking in this bowl of water and nothing is happening and I decided to tempt the gods which I think is abysmally foolish and I say hey if there is something some presence on me prove it and within a minute or so I put down the bowl and I am overcome by this incredibly strange seductive feeling and my hands start moving all across my body and I start panicking and I'm out loud saying no 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 and my hands as if they're someone else's are moving all over me and I'll exclude the details but as it was as if someone had the controller to my body and I Philippe was sitting there not able to do anything as my body was possessed by something and this scared me so badly that I left my house I basically power walked in the middle of the night to my friends and I arrived at her place and she said she had never seen me like that before I was you know pale faced and t- and you know weeping because I was so scared at this paranormal experience I was so so scared and I didn't understand what had just happened like it felt as though it was a possession like something you might see in you know an old film an old witchy film in medieval Europe and I didn't go I actually stayed at my friend's house for like two nights because I was so scared to go back to my apartment and while I was trying to understand these experiences I got into Carl Jung's work and Jung has really created a guidebook for me in many many ways on how to see my own life and I read about the anima which is the the feminine within a man and the feminine in a man is just a symbolic way to talk about certain aspects that we see as quote-unquote feminine inside of a man so things like creativity things like um, connection to spirit connection to nature having relationships um, following one's passions those are all the light sides the dark sides can be depression can be anxiety can be um, a lack of a lack of uh, feeling alive or a, a waspishness a waspishness or a bitterness 
And I read in Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz, which was a Jung student, I read in their work this concept that our anima can be projected outwardly, just like any of these Jungian archetypes, that we, we see our internal world outside and we project it all over the place because we don't want to make these things conscious that they're inside of us. And when the anima is kind of in a negative place in one's life, one possibility is a man could be possessed by ideas of the witch. And we see this in medieval Europe. We saw the witch trials and how perhaps collectively, uh, a, perhaps collectively in the consciousness of men was this fear of the, the feminine, the sexual feminine, the powerful feminine, the um, mysterious feminine. All these things were so terrifying within a man's own soul that they were projecting it out into the world, which obviously led to, you know, unbelievable um, horrors of the witch burnings and witch trials. And so reading this, I realized, oh my God, I am projecting these things out onto other women. I was scared of these strong women, of their sensuality, because at that time I was sexually insecure. I was projecting um, them having some kind of uh, paranormal powers that could um, shape my own life and could curse me and things like that. When in reality, all those things were just within me. The witch was in me. So through the process of trying to understand my own experiences, I ended up writing an entire uh, script, an entire film script called Cecile about this witch-like woman. And, you know, I wrote 25 versions of this script and perhaps I'll turn it into a book. Who knows if it'll ever become a movie. But that was a process of just understanding my own witch experiences. And, you know, all of these psychological all these psychological paths are a lifelong process but it does feel good to know that you know now I'm in a loving long-term relationship with an incredibly witchy woman and it's a healthy relationship so the anima has at least been healed to that level Well, this starts an immediate, immediately starts an interesting conversation. So I want to know what goes into being a folklorist and studying folklore. Are you, are you not only reading a lot of this in books, are you also doing stuff like going out and interviewing people? So um, obviously there's a very like scholarly aspect to it. There is a lot of reading and there's a lot of studying. But the majority of what folklore is about is – um, going and interviewing people. So, um, so cool. When, um, so when we teach about the word folklore, folk meaning the people and lore meaning stories. So folklore is the stories of the people. And that can be anything from ghost tales that their parents told them or they brought over from another country, all the way up to the kinds of stories skateboarders tell each other when they're hanging out. Hmm. 
all kinds of folklore and folk life exists. Um, every group has its own folklore. Every type of person has their own folklore, and that that includes professions and um, many other subcategories. Very cool. And so, are you from West Virginia? I am. I was born and raised in Fairmont, West Virginia, which okay. is about thirty minutes south of Morgantown. So you are steeped in like. Appalachian folklore. Absolutely. And when you're in it, you don't know that you're steeped in it, Mm. right? Because it's just life, right? Um, The superstitions and the the sort of uh, folk magic that you practice is just is just something that you're taught by your parents and your grandparents. Like um, my grandfather always put tomatoes on the windowsill and my mom always put tomatoes on the windowsill. And just last year I came upon this interesting thing um, about how having tomatoes in your windowsill protect you against evil magic, right? Oh my God. Now did your, now did your father and grandparents actually say that? No, absolutely not. They're just, just as in your childhood, they would just be normal. There was always tomatoes in our, in our kitchen, you know, during the season, there were Mm -hmm. always tomatoes in our kitchen window. And, um, my grandfather was a farmer. And so I'm sure part of it, I'm sure he was taught that, right? Um, and part of it is is that you pick them a little before they're too ripe and giving them access to the sunlight and right, you know, that sh- would in theory give them the ability to ripen more. Um, although I think most uh, horticulturists would say that just picking them and, and leaving them be in a cool, dry place would also allow them to ripen. So why the kitchen window? Did they think it would give them more sunlight? Or was there something, or was there an older tradition that he probably wasn't even aware of? Um, because he cer- certainly wasn't superstitious mm. at all. It was more my mother's family that, um, you know, told old wives tales or, or believe deeply in superstition. Um, you know, like, um, you know, it's going to rain when, when the leaves of a tree turn over. So, okay. How do you mean, what does that mean exactly? So, um, and this is something you can observationally fact mm-hmm. check. So there are, so trees with leaves that, you know, like oak trees and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing with, with leaves that are a little bit more um, limber, um, they will turn upside down right mm. before it rains. In the wind, like in the breeze? Um, or not, not even? Not even in the breeze. They'll just what? kind of start slowly shifting upwards. Have you seen this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. And, and this is true of like, I mean, you know, if you're looking at like farm-based um witch lore or mat folk belief uh, you know like cows and other animals they know when it's going to rain and you know, they say when the cows are laying down in the pasture it's gonna you know you can kind of see when they're preparing for it because they have you know they have a, a foreknowledge of what's about to happen i love this stuff so much it's so cool now how did you um get into the witch lore element so uh witch lore has always been in- uh interesting to me um my introduction to it has always, was sort of a, a more typical, less um, folky introduction. I was always interested in witches. You know, I grew up um, on a healthy dose of like movies like The Craft. Mm-hmm. And like I can remember friend, my friends and I in middle like, or junior high school, like we watched it every weekend for like two years solid. And, and, and just kind of like the neo-paganism and Wicca, that is how the interest really started. Um, but then when you go back to your roots, when you, when I started studying Appalachian folklore at the folk, at the West Virginia Gabor Folklife Center, um, I realized that a lot of the practices that my family held were all, um, what I consider folk magic. Mm. And so, um, if it's helpful to you, I thought I'd give you some, inf- like some categories, right? So, yes, please. um, folk mag, I, so what I call folk magic is, um, 
magical practices done by people um, because that is traditionally how something is done, not because they have um, sort of a deep um, belief in paganism or Wiccanism or anything else um, other than the normal, mono, not sure, normal, typical monotheism that is Christianity, right? Um, so, and it's things like I said, like throwing salt over your shoulder when you spill it, um, you know, planting things on a certain day, not planting things on a certain day, um, using the stars and astrology to determine, um, agricultural mm -hmm. movements. And, and, and some of it's as simple as like not walking under a ladder, right? It's mm -hmm. bad luck. We know um, that one. Right. Um, and, and, and it can be as complicated as always hanging a broom on your front door to keep. I saw that when out. I got here, you've got, now is that for Halloween or is that all year long? That stays out there all year long. I love it. It's um, a beautiful broom too. Thanks. It's got a nice, like uh, looks like a, a kind of a raw branch for the handle. Yeah, absolutely. I got that at a Maryland Renaissance Festival. I Very think. cool. Um, and so, um, and so, those kind of attitudes, and that was something that my my family always practiced. You know, um, not just the front door, but you know, you'll see them at multiple doors. Um, so um, that is that is sort of steeped in tradition. Um, but what you get to learn is a couple of things. First, that there is that folk magic, right? There's the kind of traditional beliefs that people have that they don't really know why they do it, but they do it, and and it has a they have a power. It gives them a powerful connection not only to their ancestors and their past, but also to the land itself. Mm. I know that agricultural elements and the land is kind of something that's really interesting to you and your podcast mm -hmm. specifically, and I think. Um, Appalachian magic is um, really well suited to that topic because the land itself um, is an entity, right? In mm -hmm. Appalachia, it is a it's a force, mm -hmm. it's a power, it's a sense of place, right? A sense of place means that you have a sense of who you are based on the land, and the land shapes the lives of Appalachians. This was also true of the people that came to Appalachia. So there were many groups because of the, the coal mining that came to Appalachia, specifically West Virginia. And so we have a lot of root cultures. We have the German Swiss, um, which include the Belgium, which we had, you and I had talked about. Yes, I told before. you my fa family's Belgian. Yeah, so we have uh, the Belgian, the German Swiss, um, people from the Carpathias, right? Um, the Italians. Um, uh, Scottish, um, Irish, Af of course, African-Americans, although many of those against their will. Um, so you have um, these uh, these amazing root cultures. That the European groups, were they all coming at different times, different time periods? Yes and no. There were some that came sooner. So, like, we still have Helvetia. Have you ever um, visited Helvetia in West no. Virginia? So it's a little bit, it's about 45 minutes north of Morgantown. Um, but it is a, it is a German Swiss community that they have like, it's, it's sort of like a time capsule. They have kept it the way it was when they first found it. And so you have some people coming sooner, the Pennsylvania Dutch, the, mm -hmm. the, 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 um, you know, Germans and Belgians and the Irish, they, they all kind of came at slightly different times, but coal mining was happening all at once. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, they were accepting pretty much anybody. And although they lived in separate coal camps, like each um, indigenous group lived in a different coal camp and kind of kept themselves separated from each other. Oh, that's fascinating. To an extent, right? It's almost like what, what happened, because I lived up in New York City for 10 years, but, you know, so much of New York City was cut up like that. 
you know, yeah. Jewish area, Italian area, Irish area. Yeah, it's very similar to that. It was very similar to that then. Um, and um, But what ended up happening, right, is that they had children and they moved out of the coal camps and their families intermarried, right, into lots of different traditions eventually. And um, not only that, but you saw you adopted practices of your neighbors. Things intermingled and it became one solid identity, which is the the West Virginia Appalachian identity that we have today. Um, But to to shoot back towards um, witch lore a little bit, I wanted to... That was very fascinating, by the way. That's super cool. Yeah, thank you. Um, What we know about Appalachian witch lore is that um, it kind of, uh, traditionally, and so I'm talking about up through the 60s and 70s, because you do have the adaptations and the... And, and the waves of neo-paganism, paganism, Wicca, all those things, those beliefs are different from what I'm going to be speaking about today. They're mm-hmm. just as valid, and, and they're cohesive. It's, it's similar. A lot of those traditions are based out of original traditions, right? Um, but the, the more um, traditional style of witch lore that Appalachia had um, had what I, I categorize into three types of witchery. So there's white witchery, which is divination, water witching, drawing wisdom from nature to divine, to divine fortunes and determine planting cycles, healing, helping, and herbalism. Then there was black witchery, which was cursing, stealing goods like milk and eggs and butter, causing others pain or death, causing others to lose their property, and witch doctoring, which is pretty unique to the Appalachian um, tradition in terms of witch culture in America. Yeah, so what's that one? So witch doctoring is breaking curses, curing, redirecting curses back to the witch who caused it, and identifying culprits and placing curses. Oh my god. So they're they're like a... They're like a... I don't know what the right word would be. It's like, um, I don't know. So it's, a, it's almost like the law enforcement of, of witchery. To an extent. <laughs> um, and, and there is some blurring of lines, right? So what I will say about Appalachians and the root cultures that came um, to there, many of them had um, basic Christian principles, mm. right? Um, and mixed in with those Christian principles are all, this, are all these folk magic practices, right? So people who and and even the the black witchery that people was accused of, um, typically, um, you know, was still folk magic that was being done done to them. It was cursing them for wronging them. Right? They you know disgraced their daughter by mm. not you know by besmirching her honor or um, you know stole something from their land or now when you say steal something from the land, like actually go and steal something or do this in some kind of magical way so it's both right so so taking something from them might be what angers them but how they get back at you would be what um what we like to call sympathetic magic Mm. and so sympathetic magic is using something to represent something else and causing something to happen Mm. and i know that sounds really basic but i'm going to give you an example so um there is a case in witches ghosts and signs by patrick gainer um i almost bought that book i saw it on amazon you should buy it. You okay. will like it a lot. Okay. Um, but one of the things that happens in that book is that um, basically, this is a lot of times witches were your neighbors that were doing you harm, right? So it's not some 
it's not some crazy old crone who lives way out in the forest. You don't know her. It's you know, it's it's Mrs. Hildy up the hill, right? Or it's it's your your next door neighbor two farms over. Which, but from your point of view, right? right from your point of yeah, view, so right? Okay, so it's something you're putting on to someone else. You're pro- you're projecting, projecting that it. image yes. of witchery, yes. and and you know, I don't think any of these people, even the ones doing the black witchery, would have called themselves witches, mm-hmm. right? Because they all have a fundamental Christian belief. Mm-hmm. Um, and their Christian beliefs, especially the Germanic ones, um, and I'll talk a little bit more that, about that in a minute, but especially the Germanic ones allowed for a lot of folk magic in them. And some of the witch doctoring that was done, well, let me let me go to the stealing property. Yep, so yep. it's said that um, witches, there, there are multiple stories in the literature of um, Appalachian witch lore where witches were, are able to take an axe and milk milk from your cow, still milk from your cow with it. Um, and one of the really interesting ones, um, how? how, how I'm not sure. Wow. They were able to tie, um, a rag, right. To maybe the end of an ax handle or maybe something else. And they, and they would wring out milk and eggs and butter. <laughs> right. Um, <clears throat> so, and how this came about is like, if a cow wasn't, if all their cows weren't producing milk, where is this milk going? Um, and so a lot of that kind of um, folk magic practice was a way of laying blame on someone else for um, an agricultural problem, right? Mm-hmm. Their crops weren't moving the way okay, they should. Okay, so, yeah. So your cow that normally gives you milk for some reason is not. So the answer to that is someone is, at, is harvesting that milk somewhere else through right. witchery. Or, or your cow's giving bloody milk, which can happen mm. too. Um, uh, or um, I've seen interesting ones, uh, or there's interesting stories in here where they're trying to, um, you know, turn milk into butter, and they're they're at a point where it's on the stove, I think, um, or maybe it was something else, but it was some kind of product that they were making that had to do with milk, and it would, and at, when it started to boil, it would always boil bloody until, oh. until, um, and here's the important thing that's a really good connection um, to to stop many times to stop the 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 curse or from their stealing you had to have an object from that person and that's part of actually where some of that sympathetic sympathetic magic comes in so we're familiar um, culturally of voodoo and how mm-hmm. um, sympathetic magic is used by taking a piece of someone and putting it on a poppet or what people mm-hmm. commonly call a voodoo doll, right? And um, using that to control a person or to make something happen. It's very similar to that. It's a, it's an equally ancient tradition in which you have to get something from them. And it can be as simple as offering them something to drink and then taking the tin back that you used to oh, let them. Because it has saliva on it. Right. And then, and then using it. In the case of the boiling um, blood milk, they used a coin that she had touched. All she had to do was touch it, and then they put it into the pot, and it stopped that from happening anymore. So Ah, so they used that one to break the curse. That's correct. Whoa. This now, is cool. Now, um, some of the more Christian elements of witch doctoring. So so there were there was white witch there was people doing white witchery, which I said was divination, water witching, um, drawing wisdom from nature, healing and helping. So they were making sachets, and a sachet is a small bag filled with herbs and sometimes crystals. Back then, it would have just been herbs that help promote healing um, through the Earth's natural properties. 
And so they would make up these little bags and, and they weren't doing it to sell or to, to peddle witchery. This is things they made up for their grandchildren who had mm. toothaches or to protect them from smallpox or cholera or whatever. Mm. Um, and so, um, so this was just a natural practice for them. Um, even the black witchery, like putting a curse on someone who's done you wrong was fairly like simple practice. Witch doctoring, on the other hand, um, it has an element of witch hunting to it, right? Mm. Um, there were some people who did it that were just about breaking curses, but a lot of it really had to do with like laying blame on someone, right? Mm. And this sort of witch hunt mentality is kind of mixed with you know what you saw in the Crusades, mm -hmm. kind of mixed with the the hysteria that we saw in Salem, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, these witch doctors, um, almost entire. Actually, I don't think I've ever heard of a witch doctor who is anything but a man. Mm. So it's almost the witch hunter, right? He's almost a witch hunter, but he's using. Ma but the ironic mm. thing about it is, is he uses magic to stop the witch. And it also sounds like this would be the only one that's self-proclaimed. Right. The other yes. ones are kind of hidden, or they don't even consider themselves that. Yeah, the witch doctor says, hey, call me up when you need some help. Exactly. Both. Um, Obviously it, not calling, but you know <laughs> right. what I mean. Well, sometimes. Come I get mean, me. But, but, um, but no, you're very right. Uh, the others didn't identify as witches. Mm. Um, but he would definitely identify himself as a witch doctor. Um, and it was his role in the community um, or communities to come and break curses. And a lot of the ways... In, in which they melded Christian um, doctrine into their magical practices was writing scriptures. Hmm. They would call it writing papers, um, but basically what they would do is they would there were specific scriptures that they would write on on what they called a ticket. Um, and I don't know why they called it a ticket, but that's a very um, German sort of like practice. Actually, it comes from the Pennsylvania Dutch, and so. Um, and so they would write these tickets out and then they would wrap a lot of times they would wrap it around like a piece of iron and they would nail it into a tree to cause something to happen or to break something from happening. So if they felt like they were being cursed, they would wrap it around something iron, which we in temporary times kind of relate to how you um, counteract fey magic or um, supernatural creature magic, right? We associate iron with supernatural um creatures of the fae and then tap that end with a, a certain amount of times with a hammer into the the tree to cause something to happen or they would post them above their um, doorways or um, they would roll them up um, include an item of the person who was being witched and bury them in the ground mm. so do you know why they chose the iron do you know what or do you know what is symbolic about the iron it i don't think it was always iron it was probably mm. more what they had around okay um Again, like I said, so you have that Scottish-Irish mm -hmm. influence, and iron is one of the thing, one of the protectors against creatures of the Fae. And when we talk about creatures of the Fae, um, it's such a wider spectrum than what people think of as fairies, right? They think fairies mm -hmm. when you say creatures of the Fae. But the Fae are, are in Scottish and Irish mythology, are um, a combination of pretty much all of their supernatural creatures. So that includes the Banshee. That includes um, everything, um, you know, in, in the hunt, right? So, um, and the hunt was this like wild, they were the wild, dark creatures of fairy. Mm. Um, and so um, 
they have this in the back of their mind built into their practices already you know wear a piece of iron around your you know around your neck to to protect you from their trickery or um from bad things to happening to you um so when you look at these different practices um you see like i said a lot of christian um ideology built into it and that was a way that they could practice it without uh without feeling like they were they were doing witchcraft or or doing magic really at all um i want i have a weird question i wanted to ask you sure so i feel like so i, w- I did want to ask did they bring the christian element to the wit to the witch concept in appalachia and i wanted to also ask um like my feeling is like today when you think or at least when i think of the witch and then i would think even in like ancient Greece, right, with Circe, like there was a sensual element, like a sexual element that it doesn't seem like the witch of Europe and does the witch of Appalachia, does it have that seductress element, that like femme fatale element at all? Yes and no. So typically not. So the witchcraft that's done in it is typically neighbor against neighbor. Mm. Um, And so I talk, uh, so the, the kinds of, things that happen are, are three things. So witches in Appalachian witch lore were people they knew. Oftentimes they were named by the storyteller like Mrs. Hattie or mm. Ellen um, Conrad down the street. In any case, they were almost always a neighbor or member of their community. Um, nearly, if not all, witch lore tales th- that um, that I've studied contain the element of jealousy on the part of the mm. witch. Whether that be a farm animal, food or milk or butter or land, in all cases... Um, that I've read about the witch wanted something that belonged to the person that they were cursing. Mm. Um, And breaking a spell or ending a curse by symbolic action in many of these stories, hot metal or a switch is used to punish the witch or break the spell. Mm. In terms of the temptress, there are a certain um, um, group of stories in which um, a a witch either um, quote-unquote tricked a man into marrying them or their mother-in-law more often was a witch and and used her daughter's um, women womenly wiles to entice the man into marrying her. Mm. So um, yes, there was a little femme fatale, but it was mostly in terms of being able to get married. So um, so a very Christianized version, right? Yeah, so, totally. Um, we're not talking about witches who like lured men into having sex with them mm-hmm. premaritally and then bad things happen to them. Usually it was the opposite. Uh, the stories um, sort of reflect um, sort of the, the poor old um, straight white guy who who got tricked into marrying a witch mm. and now she she be you know she she makes his life miserable mm. by controlling him and wow. doing all these things that quote unquote women shouldn't do right which is control the household interesting um or or have any really self power i mean the the witch even in appalachian witch lore is a figure of power right and the fear of witch and witchcraft is all about men's fear of not being in control and not having the power totally. in their relationships. Um, to, well, I want to pause you. Sure. Because I think while we were talking, when you're, so for the listeners, behind, we're in your bedroom, kind of mm-hmm. like lounge area, but behind behind you is a big shelf of books. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure one of the books moved on the back shelf. Oh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, Lots I, of things move a lot. I think one of the books like moved forward because I saw like a big glimmer on one book. And it kind of, it jumped. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and pretty spooky, right? <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, well, to stay on that thought. Mm-hmm. So I, I told you in text, I'm really into Jungian psychology. And um, one of Jung's students, Marie-Louise von Franz, who's like really a sage, uh, she, in this book, Man and Assembles, she kind of clarifies a lot of Jung's ideas and then kind of goes on her own path and, and uh, shares her knowledge. But one thing she talks about is... Um, this concept of anima, which is the which is the feminine in a man, and when that is out, and so the feminine in a man is off is often uh, one's a man's connection to nature, to his emotions, towards relationships, towards clairvoyance, towards creativity, and when that's out of whack, then there can be that projection where you're seeing the witch out in the world, and I I think their theory was kind of that that mass hysteria in Europe of killing all these witches was this like collective male uh, projection of the fear of the feminine in themselves. And they're projecting it all over the place. And obviously all the horrors that came from that. So I think that's fascinating. I don't know if that relates to anything that you know about or, yeah, I mean, or I think if you that, agree, I think that that's, that's a really interesting take on it. Um, I think that our understanding of, of masculine and feminine is, is such a strong construct Mm. Um, one that really doesn't exist in the natural world, mm. right? Um, that um, we we do ultimately project, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we put these really strong boxes in place. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've studied some specific um, Wicca and neo paganism aside from Appalachian witch lore that had more to do with um, like like queer magic. Mm. Um, the LGBTQIA community and their relation to magic, and I do think that there is a really strong element in um, in how we um, and how queer people, especially when you look at the two spirited, um, like in traditional communities, mm-hmm. um, and I wouldn't say in in sort in the Appalach- any of the Appalachian root cultures, but in a lot of other root cultures, a lot of the traditional. What does that mean? Uh, okay. Root cultures. Root cultures are cultures that come from other countries because okay. only indigenous people have root culture okay. connected to this land that we're on today. Um, but what I mean is, is that if when you look at the indigenous people, Native Americans, mm-hmm. and and many other traditions, they're shamans, right? Mm-hmm. Their spiritual leaders were LGBT queer people before queer people had a word for mm. it, right? They were um, oftentimes cross-dressing or sometimes were hermaphrodites, right? Or sometimes were just gay mm. um, or some other form of queer. And um, their their part in society was about being a spiritual leader or or producing magic of some kind, of mm. being a shaman. Um, I, have, I hadn't quite heard that before. That's interesting. I had heard that obviously in indigenous groups that, um, that was very much an okay role in society. There was no problems at all. But I hadn't quite heard that it was often seen with reverence. And I did want to ask you, um, I guess you're already talking about it, but I did want to ask why you thought um, the queer community was, like you see the overlap with the occult. is Like I've noticed it a lot. And I was very curious where that, where does that sentiment come from or, I think it comes from two places. I think the first place it comes from is the sense of feminine power that you get from the occult. The occult mm. is more based on matriarchy than mm. in, on patriarchy. And um, so you have you have the sense of feminine power, right? And a lot of queer people, their their identity is based on 
the feminine aspect of themselves. Um, not all, but you know, just that the you know, like when you think of drag, um, for example, like that is a hyper feminized mm-hmm. version of themselves, right? And when you think about a lot of other um, queer cultural traits, a lot of um, what they talk about speech patterns and mannerisms are all feminized, right? Um, whether that be because of how our brains function or our things that we adapted from powerful women we knew, it's hard to say. Um, but what's really interesting, so I think, so the, I think the, the, the aspect of the feminine that you have um, in the occult is part of it. The other thing is, is, you know, Wicca, paganism, neo-paganism, all of those spiritual beliefs, they make room for queer people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Whereas there is a tradition of excluding those people exactly. or demonizing those from people. The, from the quote-unquote normal religions. And right, from, yes. from, the more, from, from the more basic religions mm-hmm. um, that are both patriarchal in general and also all kind of go back to the same root. So the, the Old Testament, the Torah, the Quran, they all have elements. They, they all come, they all spring from similar elements mm-hmm. and, and beliefs and teachings. And so I think that we see that um, as, as the other real reason I think that it happens. In terms of the, what's really interesting about Appalachian witch lore mm-hmm. is that it is more masculine than most witch traditions. Mm. Um, because that was something else I wanted to ask you. Is there a difference between the witch lore in Appalachia and the witch lore, you know, back in Europe where a lot of these people were coming from? Yes and no. So this is another interesting thing about the land that I think you'll like. We have studied, um, the West Virginia Gabor Folklife Center has one of the things that we do is we study our root cultures, right? And the people who typically chose to can't to come to West Virginia, um, were root cultures who already had land similar to ours. Mm. So when you look at some of the elements of of Northern Ireland, for example, um, of their land, of their physical land, of the Carpathian Mountains, of the mountainous regions of Belgium and Luxembourg and and Switzerland, that area along the Rhine that that um, has a um, has mountain people essentially. We find that all those people have a ton in common, mm-hmm. right? And so we th- we can theorize that part of the reason they chose West Virginia to come to was because it reminded them of home, right? That was certainly true of the Helvetians from from the Swiss Germans who came and and landed in um, what's now Helvetia. But um, in general, the land the land shapes right this who they were and and the similarity um reaches back to them i think popular culture tends to follow um these basic european um like ideas of which witchery um but even the root cultures of of appalachian of appalachia their magical beliefs are also very uh or, or, or very similar and and what i mean by that is um if have you ever seen water witching do you know what it is um so I have those Foxfire books, which oh, okay. are so cool. And yes. I think Water Witching is in there. The, from my basic understanding, well, I want to let you describe it. But yes, sure. I have a, a basic awareness of it. But you'll... you'll. So I've s- seen it done in person before. And you believe it. I do believe it. Um, and belief is a very powerful thing, right? Um, the difference between, you know, belief and superstition is merely practice, right? Um, so... What 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 one does, who is a water witching person, is, is they take a stick that's forked like a Y. So they hand they hold the top part of the Y, and then they use that stick to guide them to water that's moving underground. 
um, and they they do they hold it loosely in their hands and it and it directs them. How this exactly works, I'm not sure. Um, I've seen people use a lot of different instruments to do it, including these like little thin strips of metal. Um, but the idea is is that um, there is a vibration of the water, right? Mm. That they're able to that they're drawn to that they can lead to, and I've seen it work. Um, now, and- is the point to find a well for the landowner to build? Absolutely. The okay. point is to find wa- is to know where there is water underneath the land. Okay. Um, and and to be able to and so it's very agricultural based. And the kind of people that you the kind of quote unquote like witches right you <laughs> see doing these are these grisly old bearded men who uh, you know would just as soon like you would imagine like punching you in the face as doing witchcraft right so you have this idea of like you have this iconic idea of the mountain man and these are the kind of people who are doing these witch practices it's it's not feminized at all um which is really interesting it's it's a real um contrast to what we've seen before um in in typical witch um categories now is that water witching is that a very appalachian thing it is okay. um because finding water right under the mountainous mm-hmm. soil is not only important but um it it can be the difference between living and dying right it can be the difference between finding the source of water on your land and your land being proper prosperous or not making it through the next winter this is so cool so it's 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 life affirming, right? Mm-hmm. All almost all the magic um, in Appalachia is has a utilitary purpose behind it. Where we get into the gray matter is that that sense of jealousy, right? Like, mm. like my neighbor has twenty more has is always able to buy more cows than I am. Um, you know, like what are they, are they are they stealing money? Are they taking something from me? Why does their crop grow better than mine? Uh, it, it's rooted in jealousy, human nature. Right. I mean, you know, it's so interesting. When I was still living in New York City, I was listening to all these podcasts about, you know, move away to the country, live in small groups. And, you know, this romantic view, you know, live with a, only, you know, a small group of 50. And you're like, oh, and then all your problems will be solved. I don't think so. You're still, you know, you get to the country and there's just as much, there's human drama. And you're not, it's inescapable. It's part of human nature. And it's interesting to hear you even say it through um, the lens of folklore. It truly is. And unless you decide to become like the kind of monk who lives in a monastery mm. and doesn't speak to like a completely like <laughs> s- silent monk, I think unless you have a silent order, I think that the, the chance of having, <laughs> of having some kind of drama is inherent in all human beings. Right. And we do, we romanticize the country, people in the country romanticize the city. Mm-hmm. Like all my problems will just be solved mm-hmm. if X and um, and this is what led people over to America in the first place and into Appalachia. Like Appalachia was a mountainous, crappy place to live, and mm. so most people weren't going there. So it's like this is our chance to start over. This is our chance for freedom to to build the life we want to build. And it was a hard life, mm. um, and that shaped the people. And again, I, I think I want to. I really want to press upon this idea that the land shaped the people, mm. and it also insulated them from influences outside. What's great about Appalachian folklore for many years was we were able to capture pure versions of it because it wasn't until the radio was invented and people in and you know and people in Appalachia started to actually get it, which were years later, right? Um, that it started to influence the way people behaved um, or listened to music or played music or spoke or read. Everything they didn't have any of those outside influences. There are some really interesting folklorists who went into West, well, went into Appalachia and collected folk songs and ballads that 
were almost identical to the ones over in their root cultures like Northern Ireland and Scotland. And the reason they were able to do that is because the mountains insulated them from influence. Because what happens with folklore? Folklore is a living thing. Mm -hmm. It's a living, breathing thing. Every time I tell a story, it changes a little bit because I do it from memory, right? Oh, beautiful. And and when I tell you this, uh, I'm going to tell some stories today, right? Hell yeah. And I'm going to tell them to you. And then you're going to go home and you're going to tell them to somebody else. I'm going to tell my girlfriend. Right. And And then... and you might change a couple elements. One, because you don't remember it. And two, because people change stories and songs and, and, and practices to fit their life. Even traditions that are passed down on and on and on and on, they evolve. Folklore, folk practice, folk tradition is always evolving. Every moment, every element that is introduced to it changes it. And that that's, comes from the simple things as the superstitions you believe all the way down to... Um, the kind of graffiti that's being tagged on buildings, mm-hmm. right? Because someone sees someone else's art, they're influenced by it. So they add a little element to their own. And this this evolution of folk traditions as we go, that that is what's beautiful, like not only about the traditions, but about life. Um, I'm assuming there must be folklorists who do want to kind of stop it at a certain period. Yeah, so I don't know that 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 ideology exists much anymore mm. but there was a there was a point right mm. in um in our profession mm. where they wanted to capture what they thought was pure right, right. this idea of the the ur story and you are meaning like the the original one what mm. all of them connect to where they all come from because when you look at folk tales and even things that have come out of those folk tales like fairy tales like cinderella for example um, there are versions of Cinderella in every culture, mm. and so, and they're they're different, but they're they have the same kernels of truth, right? The same touchstones that show was us. Cerinda, was Cinderella made popular from Grimm's? Um, there, there is a Grimm's version of Cinderella, okay. but I think Hans Christian Andersen is the one that really popularized it, right? Because he was bringing it to some masses at the time, mm. or at least the rich people, and then it trickled down, right? Because Hans Christian Andersen was writing for um, the court. Um, oh, okay. But, but what ended up happening? Um, I'm sorry, I forget your original question. Was, oh, oh no, I was asking if Cinderella was was in the Grimm's. Oh, it is. I mean, there's a virgin a version of it, and so and there's a virgin of all the stories, and, and you'll even see what's more interesting to me than what's in the Grimm's. Well, it was taking what's in the Grimm's in the European tradition and looking at what's in Asian folk tales, right? Yes, because there's a there's an Asian Cinderella, right? There's an Asian Sleeping Beauty. There there are tales that are similar that connect to those, and they were far apart. And not to say that they never interacted with each other, but that. But to see when you see these these kernels of truth and all these different, it, it begins to build in your mind uh, like a like a sort of an or original truth, right? Mm-hmm. A, a deeper meaning that that holds true for all people. Yeah, well, you're it's getting becoming like the archetypal stories, right? Right, and I did want to say something about Grimm's really quick. Sure, yeah, I learned that in the Grimm's that I guess because I guess that was Victorian times. Mm-hmm. They thought it was too dark. They were going around collecting all these stories in Germany. Feel free to interrupt if I'm if I'm not right with this. But they're going around in Germany collecting these folk stories before the kind of rural people were trans. I don't know. Were were literate, literate, and um, they they came to the decision that it was too dark 
in all these stories to have the mother be this evil character. So they change it to that whole concept of the stepmother being the evil stepmother. But from what I heard in a documentary or something, they're basically saying in these original stories, it's the mother who is that evil figure in a lot of the stories. Yeah, so what's interesting about the Brothers Grimm is they were collecting stories from the people. So they were going to scullery maids and and all of these people. What exactly is a scullery maid? Uh, like someone who watched the pots out. Okay. okay. <laughs> so uh, in other words, someone who is less important in the maid world. Okay. Um, so like a lower maid mm. in, in these big rich houses or in these big communities. Um, so they were going to all these rural communities. They were collecting stories. And the, the interesting thing, so what was happening before the Brothers Grimm, right, is oral tradition. And the oral tradition trickled up to the gentry classes, right? To the rich classes through um, bards or people who were storytellers who would come and entertain them. But everyone else was just hanging out at night and telling stories, right? That was their only form of entertainment. There was no Netflix. So they were they were telling stories. And so they, they were interested in these stories, so they began collecting them, especially when they, they heard similar stories told over and over again with slight variations, right? And you're right. Not only were was did they change it from mom to stepmom, the original material, which I urge you to look at sometime, is incredibly dark, incredibly dark. And as it made its way into popular culture, because again, a lot of people weren't literate, so, um, so it. It, it was a slow roll. Like when they, when people started to read their things, the common people started to read their things. It was way too dark, and it eventually, like everything else, gets. Uh, and I'm going to use the word whitewashed, although this this isn't racial necessarily. Disneyfied. Yeah, it gets Disneyfied, right? It was it was it was polished up to be more palatable, more palatable, to the point where, um, to the point in society where stories became something for children. Yes. And traditionally, yes. they, they weren't. Stories were for point. adults, and children were just around, right? Wow. Um, and so um, at some point in our society, we decided that stories were for kids, yeah, not that's for so adults. Weird. Um, and that's a fairly American, I would say that's a very Americanized belief, mm. right? When um, when we started to to move away from agriculture and move towards business, right? Mm. So like you went to work and did your nine to five thing. You had this thing that you did every day and stories were for children, right? Mm. And um, and so they created these palatable versions, right, of the stories, a lot less eating of people, a lot, like, a lot less cannibalism, a lot less <laughs> torture. Um, and there was there was even a lot of sexual elements to the mm. original Grimm's that you that were completely eradicated that you really have to think through. Um, I mean, you think about, um, you know, bells and cat, you know, capture being captured by the beast and being held her prisoner, um, you know. We oh, see Belle. a very yeah, okay. Belle, right? Yeah, like the Beauty and the yes. Beast story. Um, many, many more um, older versions of that story are a lot more sexualized because, mm. you know, Belle wasn't there to read to him, right? Mm. He was, you know, she was. She this, was a sexual prisoner, right? Uh, mm. Of some sort, right? Mm. She was a prisoner of some sort, and it's folly on our wow. part to assume that there was no sexual element mm. to that. Um, but there are a lot of fairy tale um, experts and folktale experts that um, know this material much more than me. But when we look back at the Appalachian, yeah, sorry were, to go on that uh, little European derailment. That's okay. It's really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, when we look at the powers of the witches in Appalachian witch lore, we have shape shifting, 
right? Mm. Witches, witches are often said to have the ability to shed their skin and in some cases take the form of an animal, mm. most typically cats, specifically black, black cats, but instances of raccoons and snakes no. were also found. Raccoons? Right? Well, of course, because this is a this is an this is a an animal that is related to where we live, right? There's a lot of raccoons here. And a lot of the animals that are associated with it are were seen at, at that time as useless animals, right? Like there's not a lot of use other than eating raccoons, mm -hmm. right? Um and same with cats, right? I mean cats chased mice sometimes, but that was about the the extent of their utility, right? Mm -hmm. But they were everywhere. Um and and always begging for food and always in this case causing trouble. Um and a lot of the cats, so what's interesting about Appalachian witches um, is that they shed their skin, right? So, and, and, and sometimes even leave it partially behind in such a way that, um, in such a way that we think of skinwalkers, right? We think of indigenous people practices. Mm -hmm. we, we think about um, Northern Ireland and Scotland's um, Seely. So that is a, a shape-shifting um, seal. Are you familiar with the no. Seely? Okay, so those are seals. Those are people who could um, shed their pelts, their seal skin, and walk as men on and women on the land. Um, and the traditional story of the Seely is typically that it's usually a role reversal. So the man is actually the Seely a lot of times, but the woman steals his pelt. And if you steal a Seely's pelt, you basically capture them on land forever. Until they find that pelt, they can never go back to the sea. So they're your love for the rest of the time that they're with. They're, mm. you know, you have their pelt. Very similarly, witches can, witches in Appalachia can shed their skin and become another animal while they're doing it. Now, it's not clear whether they put on, like, whether they had a shed skin of that animal that they place on their body and then sort of, like, embody. Um, you mean like a, a pelt? Right, like a pelt, exactly. Mm. Or if they just shapeshift and, that, and that's the end of it. it. That part's not real clear. But what is clear is whatever happens to the animal happens to them. There's a really interesting story in which a farmer um, is having this issue in his mill. Actually, I guess he's a miller. <laughs> and he's having this issue in his mill. And all of these cats are going in and causing all these problems. And one day he decides that he's going to plug up the og hole that's, that's in there and and stay in there overnight. And um, he he does this, and this whole, like, congregation of cats appear, and, and they're just, like, causing trouble, and, and they scare him, and they attack him, and, and he identifies one as, quote-unquote, the ringleader, and he cuts its paw off. Mm. And when he goes back to the house to his wife, he finds her in bed with a severed hand, mm. like, with a missing hand. And so... Um, this is, you know, this is um, proof to him that she was the cat, right? She was the mm. one that had done this to him. And what what she gains out of ruining his milling business, I'm not sure. Um, but but nonetheless, um, that was proof. some marital spite, right? And in another story, the husband um, finds the 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 wife's skin that she's the pelt that she the, her human pelt, right? That she's shed, and she puts and he puts salt and pepper in it. And when she returns to her skin, she's like all itchy and it and it and it like just it destroys her because um because he has, you know, added this element to it when she when she gets in. Mm. Um so there's shape shifting and it's a very powerful part of the Appalachian, which I mean it's a it's one of the big components. That is really fascinating. So you said normal house cats, raccoons, and snakes. Yes. 
And what's really and interesting- does the cat, does it ever jump over to the, um, to the cougar or to the bobcat? Yes. Um, yes, it does. Um, it's all kinds of felines. And, okay. um, there's this really- and if you hear a bob, I haven't heard it, but I've listened to it online. If you hear them screech, it is like demonic. It is. Uh, strangely <laughs> enough, I live in, I li- we lived in Germantown before, which is very city. We had a little strip of land in between our development and the one on the That's other side. That's Maryland, Germantown, Maryland. Yes, Germantown, Maryland. And um, and there was one out for a while, and it really scared me because I thought it was a woman screaming. Mm. Um, and there there come some of your femme fatale stories, right? Mm. So bobcats sound like women screaming. In, like the, and, and sometimes it even sounded like words. And Maybe that was my brain trying to mm. um, interpret what the sound was. But you, I, I could easily hear like that help sound in oh there. Oh my god! And so, yeah. What do you if it's the 1700s or 1800s? What do you do with that sound at night? I mean, how, you know, it's like what was that? I mean, I think that I mean that's how these stories are born, right? Through that fear that 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 they that they have um, based on that experience. Um, so another power of the witch in, in a lot of traditional Appalachian um, witch lore is passing through a keyhole. Mm. So the door is locked, but somehow this witch got in, right? Mm. Doors are always locked and somehow they got in. And it's rarely described in any detail, but often included is the fact that some witches possess the ability to pass through keyholes of doors. And when I was doing my research, I couldn't find any like description of how they were able to do it. You know, what were they, you know, were they, um, you know, somehow astral projecting themselves mm. in? Were they, you know, what what was it that they were doing it to get their full body through? Mm. But then I found one story that had never, I'm not even sure if it's ever been published anywhere. I found it in an archive in which the witch turns into a tiny garter snake oh. and slivers through the keyhole wow. of the door. Wow. So one could extrapolate, right, as a theory. Um, that how they did these passing through the keyholes was a, a part of that shape-shifting, right? That they is could, cool. They could become the tiny Now, snake. why did they want to get in the house in the first place? Well, that's a good question, right? It's often to steal something mm-hmm. or to do something to the person okay. in the house, right? Because if you take something from someone's house, it gives you power over them. My girlfriend does think there's something going on with the little cabin we live in with the doors, especially when I'm not around. She'll, lock, you know, we lock the door at night and she'll come right. downstairs and it'll, in the middle of the night, it'll just be like cracked open. Wow. And we have bells on both the doors so you can hear if then they ring. But she does think something is, she, I haven't quite experienced it, but she has gone downstairs a handful of times and the door will be open. And so she, so that's interesting with your, your keyhole. Yeah, that is interesting. What's different then than today is that we don't have keyholes that anything could fit through, right? Back then their keyholes were actual holes. Right. Right in the door. Um, even up through, I would say, my grandparents' doors had them, you know, all the way in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It was an older home. But still, they had keyholes that skeletons worked through. Skeleton keys. Sorry, not skeletons. Skeleton keys worked on. So, um, but what's interesting about that is this idea of inviting people or inviting evil or inviting things into your home, right? So, um, a lot of magic that you see, especially protective magic especially appalachian magic a lot of appalachian magic is protective but a lot of it has to do with protecting your home right protecting your homestead and that almost inevitably has to do with protecting the doorway okay so could you give a few examples of how people might um do the ritual or create something 
to protect the home? Absolutely. So a lot of people, so the broom was a huge, was a big one. Um, and the, there were two theories. About just like that. how you did it. Just like just hanging it on the hanging door. on the front door. And the, the, the superstition that goes along with it is that if a witch enters your home, they have to count every bristle before they're able to pass. <laughs> I love that. Um, and I'm not sure why that sort of, but, but you see a lot of things and, and, you know, to look more on modern times, you know, like I've seen a lot of Appalachian folks who have certain, um, like knot work at their back door, like, mm. you know, certain like kind of knots at, at the door. There's where, um, okay. Well, just to be specific, what are they hanging it from the door or just having it around the door? It's usually hanging it around the door or beside the door. A lot of um, people who, you know, are very rooted in their Christian ideology hang scripture above the door, hmm. right? Or beside the door. We've got the the horseshoe pointed up. Right. So there, there's actually another good one. And, you know, you've got your iron a lot of times in there right, too. Well, right. horseshoes traditionally were made of iron. I'm not sure if that one is. Okay. But <clears throat> traditionally you had a lot of horseshoes made of iron. So um, that's in part where that comes from, right? Um, so there, there are a lot of those elements um, all the way up to um, people placing crystals or um, I do want to mention... That sounds more modern, but is that actually been around for a long time not not in the way we do it now <clears throat> what was more common um um were which glasses or which balls right so you you hang that ball um that that uh, an evil spirit would pat if they tried to pass in through the house they would get caught in the fissures of the of the glass wow so i don't know if you're familiar with one of uh, the the traditional like appalachian glass blowing right so we had lots of glass blowers during certain times uh, in our history, and um, we have a—you'll see a lot of bulbs that have been created, and they'll have those fissures all the way through it. And and the intention of hanging one or putting one up is to trap spirits right? and or or bad intentions. Where do you put that? You hang that on the inside of your house. Um, I actually can, th those, uh, there isn't actually a specific place. A lot of people hang them inside their house or inside their windows. Okay, but you see them. You've seen them. Mm, popularized as those garden bulb things that people put out yes. in their yards. Okay. okay, so that tradition started there. So they would put them out front to, to, to protect their property. And that's become like that garden, that's become like that garden bulb thing um, that you see, like that fairy glass or whatever they call that's it. That's so interesting. Um, and that, to me, that's like a little bit hokey. Right. But it's that's super cool where that originates from. And even more interesting, um, Appala the App there are some Appalachian versions of witch balls that are completely different than any other tradition. So an um, Gerald Milne talks about in Signs, Cures, and Witchery, which I think you'll really like because it's specifically German Appalachian folklore, um, talks about witch balls that are kind of like these little tiny tumbleweeds that'll come um, and it'll usually have like... It, it can either be energy or power, or it can have actual elements of like dust and dirt and hair in it, and they they shock you when they touch you. They're like these little energy balls that can come through and get you. Um, I've. I mean, for real, you get a static. Yeah, a yeah. static shock uh, from this is something they used to see a lot more, and and I and I imagine that they looked kind of like balls of dust, like dust bunny balls. Um. Or at least that's how I imagine them, um, and that's part of how the witch ball like tradition grew out of is is a sort of like powerful magic infused with bits of not only the earth, um, but also 
um, bits of hair and other things that you find on the ground. A lot of um, Pennsylvania Dutch Germans will have a very specific tradition about, you know, making sure, and really all Appalachians in general, like they made a big deal about their fingernails and their hair being cut. Like you would never want a witch to get a hold of these things to be able to do sympathetic magic. And many um, people, there was a movie made to go along with Gerald Men's book. It, there's a documentary that goes along with it. Got to see that. And a woman remembers her mom taking her and her siblings' hair cut and then put. Um, you actually do have to see this film. Um, put and bury would bury it in the garden. My God, because you didn't want anyone to have access to the hair. And back then, you did your hair like people. Your mother cut your hair back then. My God. So, <clears throat> so there were a lot of these really interesting practices. Uh, some other really interesting um, practices um, that Gerald Min talks about specifically um, are things that came from Germany and Belgium and Luxembourg. Was astrology um, cures and signs? Are you for are familiar with like the Seder Square? No. Um, so the Seder Square is, um, sort of like a magical talisman that is written out in words. It's a word talisman, um, and it, and it, and it repeats the word Sado Arepo Tenet Opera Rotas. So these are a set of words, um, that are put on a square and then they're placed in the home or in the barn and it protects, protects them from it. Modern and neo-paganism and Wiccanism have versions of this square as sort of like sigils of power. Oh, so what does that translate to? Those words, I have, I have no idea off the top of my head. That's Latin. <laughs> I think it's German, but oh, I'm not sure. sorry. Okay, I'm sure. I'm not sure though. To be okay, okay. to be honest, it could be Latin. Um, but um, these these power squares are something that they placed in their power homes square. or in. And, and, and they have, it has a biblical, it has a biblical connection to it. And I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but it's, it's, this practice is, you know, dates back to early Christianity. Wow. Um, and astrology is something that they very strongly believed in that we today, um, that many people throughout history has considered, um, kind of like a, a magical practice, right? Um, or even today, more modern, kind of a hippy-dippy kind of mm -hmm. ide ideology. <clears throat> um, but back then, they used this, they used the stars, right? They were using the earth and the stars to determine when to plant, um, when to harvest, when to sow, you know, when to shear their animals. It, they used this earth magic, basically, to, to tell them things. Yeah, a lot of the herbalists I follow still do stuff with the moon, when they make their tinctures and stuff like that. Absolutely, the moon had. I mean, the moon is thought to have a lot of of power, um, and um, you know, its its influence on us uh, is is in every part of our lives. It and it goes right down to the superstitions of, oh, it's a bad night in the ER. It must be a, a full moon, right? Mm -hmm. People are crazier at the full moon. Um, yeah, I've heard that police stations staff more officers and then hospitals staff more, I, um, you know, they staff their hospital more on full moons. It's just a way of adding to, is to is to um, giving into that belief mm -hmm. that of, of magical practices that people just it's 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 things they do that they don't know they do. And also exactly it's based on it's based partially on belief, but also on on experience. Right. Right. Things are worse during that time, so they staff it more. <laughs> it, and and it's it's a little bit of proof in the pudding that that you know 
um, that we are more connected to the land and to astrology than we, than the average person may like to think. Mm-hmm. Okay, do you want to tell a folktale? I'm going to tell you a couple stories, if that's okay. Hell yes. Um, are you going to read them or do them orally? A little bit of both. Okay, cool. Um, so I had because you asked for some of my own personal first experience narratives, and um, so I have two of those. Wow, thank and you. And I have a witch tale, but I want to start with when we're really thinking about the land. And we think about how it shapes us. The most popularized and important collection of tales put together for West Virginia was Dr. Ruth Ann Music's um, West Virginia Ghost Tales, right? There were three books in that series. And um, you studied under one of her students. Judy, who you mentioned before, was her student, correct? Right, yeah. So Dr. Music um, came from the Ozarks, and she was always interested in in folklore. She actually was... This um, was late 1800s, early 1900s? This was early nineteen. This okay. was early to mid nineteen hundreds. Mid nineteen hundreds. Okay, yeah. So she was a uh, she had she was a math teacher at Fairmont State University, and um, she was trained um, in folklore as well. And she began doing intro classes at Fairmont State. Before she did that, she went around to local families, and had dinner with them. Sat around with them in the evenings and listened to their stories and captured them. Um, some of this comes from that. Some of this comes from her students, right, and their family stories. Um, one of the families that she worked with was um, my mentor, Dr. Judy Byers. She um, she studied. Uh, she came to her house. She heard tales told from her family, which is in San Giovanni and Fiora, Italy. Um, so so she got some of those original Italian folk tales, right, that were passed down and Appalachianized, right, through her family. Um, Her family were big storytellers, and Judy um, came to love this. She also became a teacher. Um, She taught other teachers, right? She was an education teacher. She was an English teacher, and she was eventually a folklore teacher. When Dr. Ruth Ann Music died, um, Judy took over her folklore classes the next week. Um, They were very close, and and Judy was the administrator, she was the administrix of her literary estate um, because Dr. Music did not have any children of her own or um, partner. And so um, Judy has worked to make sure that these these works are still important today. Um, what's interesting is um, the dream that Dr. Music had, which was to have the Folk Life Center, Judy has realized. And Fairmont State University um, was built on a dairy farm. It was called the College on the Hill because it was a it was it was a it was a cow pasture basically. It was a dairy farm. The apartments that Doctor Music spent most of her um, time in Fairmont living in were originally a dairy barn that was converted into apartments for um, the staff. And um, now the West Virginia Gabor Folklife Center has been um, transformed in, into the from that apartment building. So the original Kennedy Dairy Barn became the apartments and is now um, where we have the Folklife Center. And our, our main classroom is actually the apartment where Dr. Ruth Ann Music died. So she died in that building and her, wow. her legacy lives on there. Her spirit is... Her spirit Indeed. is definitely there. Um, people, I mean, knowing that she died there probably influences the way we feel, but mm-hmm. cabinets open and close in that room all the time by themselves. I mean, it's a daily occurrence. There's a certain spot where students won't even sit 
because they get freaked out during class. Um, because you know, when Judy's teaching, Judy's teaching is magical. And when she really gets into it, I think Dr. Music gets into it. And like those cabinets, they're old wooden cabinets and they'll fly open and smack the desks. So it's pretty exciting. <laughs> um, but one of the, the, the main, uh, the title of one of her collections is the Telltale Lilac Bush. And since you're specifically um, interested in how nature and the mm-hmm. land um, is rooted in folk stories and folk tales, I thought I would tell you one, the Telltale Lilac Bush. It's very short. And it goes, an old man and woman once lived by themselves along the Tigert Valley River. There had been trouble between them for many years. Few people visited them, and it was not immediately noticed that the wife had unaccountably disappeared. People suspected that the old man had killed her, but her body could not be found, and the questions were dropped. The old man lived a gay life after this, and his wife's disappearance really did not affect him until one night when a group of young men were sitting on his porch talking of all the parties with which the old man had been giving. While they were talking, a large lilac bush growing nearby began beating on the window pane and beckoning towards them as though it were trying to tell them something. No one would have thought anything of this if the wind had been blowing, but there was no wind, not even a small breeze. Paying no attention to the old man's protest, the young men dug up the lilac bush. They were stunned when they when the roots were found to be growing from the palm of a woman's hand. The old man screamed and ran down the hill towards the river, never to be seen again. Oh, man. So this story acts very much like um, the heart and the telltale and the and pose, you know, telltale heart, right? God, I love Bo. And the telltale lilac bush um, does something very similar which a lot of i'm sure judy's going to talk about ghost tales a lot of ghost tales are all about um getting revenge pointing pointing people to their killers Mm. but i want to point out another really interesting thing that you're going to find in our witch lore stories and in our ghost stories they name specific places Mm. they're they're not going to be like they're not a fof which is a friend of a friend told me a story about a car who drove itself right it they're specific tales about specific places so the old the the old um brown house on the end of the street or you know the milne's house um or or you know such and such hollow you know it's specific places um that not only roots us in a sense of place, but it, it brings it brings a reality to the stories, right? This isn't just some ghost tale you're reading out of a book or someone's just telling you. This is something that someone experienced in a specific place that you've been to or walked by. Now, and, now when you study the, the folklore of Appalachia, are you sometimes speaking to or speaking to someone who has a relationship with the characters in the story? Absolutely. Um, that gets further and further away the more we move in time and the less mm-hmm. um, apt people are to tell ghost stories, mm. right? Um, these were collected many years ago. So the work that we do in the archive. Um, so I guess so my question older. is, so you could say, oh, uh, Jim down the road and then tell a story? Yes. Okay, so it could be alive. Like you're saying, the stories could be alive with people in the community. Absolutely, and they are alive. Just think about just think about everyone who may have come on your podcast and told you a, a story about a first-person narrative, right? Yes. It, it, it happened to them or it happened to someone they knew, and it, and it lives. And I did an experiment, partially an unfair experiment, when I was taking a class at George Mason um, on spiritual. It was on the spirit world, and we had to do interviews. And I chose to go and interview the Agnostic Society, 
right? So these are people who do not believe in in any any deities, right? And one could um, extrapolate from that they also don't believe in any supernatural creatures. They're very science based, right? And so I was talking to them about their beliefs, and it was really interesting. But once we got on the story of ghosts, almost everyone had a ghost story mm. that had happened to a family member that they believed was the truth. So this is a really interesting, this is a really interesting situation, right? Because you have people who, on the surface, don't believe in supernatural things like deities, but their personal beliefs allow for ghosts. Mm. So what does that? So what does that really mean for them? Does that mean that? People die and their souls live on, but with no order, right? No heaven, no hell. They just kind of float around, you know. And so it, it just shows us that our beliefs are very um, malleable. Not a, yes, absolutely malleable, but also um, hodgepodge. You know, it's, mm, it's a quilted. Interesting. Um, yes. To use the 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 really powerful Appalachian frames, it's a quilted, right? We we quilt together the things that that we take from tradition, from religion, from our lives, and we make it work for us. And that's what folk life is all about. It's 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 pulling together that pattern that makes your life work, and your beliefs are an important part of that. So um, to to continue down with this story a little bit. Um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, it was clear, like they talked about a specific person, they talked about a specific place and that roots us. And, you know, those kind of experiences happen to all of us. I, I, for example, lived in a, a, you know, typical neighborhood. It was like a circular neighborhood. So like the road went around in a circle. So, you know, you knew back when I was a kid um, in the 90s, early 90s, you knew everybody in your neighborhood. And we and um, to go along with some of these tropes, we had an old woman who lived at the end of the street and we called her the cat lady because she had like, there were no less than 20 cats living inside her house and there were always cats outside of her house. And, you know, cats have this association with magic and we didn't think of her as a witch. We just thought of her as a cat lady, but she was a little bit nutty. Um, and she was probably some type of hoarder, what we would now know as some type of hoarder. And we didn't have a lot of interactions with her. Um, we would just see her, right? And she was odd, like many witches get accused of being, right? Or many people who get accused of witchcraft are people sort of on the edge of society, don't have big families who, who are seem to be alone and who don't fit into the mold. Um, but the really interesting thing about her is that she died several times. So um, <laughs> so we read her obituary in the paper. And, um, you know, it was like really sad. Back then, anybody who died, his obituary was always in the paper. And I was like, oh, it's a shame, you know, the cat lady died. <laughs> and um, But then the next week, we saw her standing on the corner of our street. And like, and she, we saw her around again for years to come and she had a second obituary in the paper. It was the strangest thing that, one of the strangest things I've ever experienced. And because I have a kid's memory of it, I was a child, like I was probably 10-ish when that happened. I, I, you know, my memory of it could be a little bit changed, but I did check with my mom that we had seen her obituary and that she, you know, like we, and that she appeared again multiple times um, because we, you didn't see her much. She stayed in her house a lot, but every so often, you know, you'd get that glimpse of her and, and not just in her house. Cause it's one thing to see, to think you, to see a spirit in a window or to think you see a spirit in a window. It's another thing to see them standing out on the, on, you know, taking a walk down the street. Nobody, no family member came to climb her house for a long time, and somebody, and somehow the the cats were still getting fed. So, 
my extrapolation is is that she was sticking around to feed the cats and keep them alive because they were an important part of her life um and her house was not occupied by anyone else except the cats for many years later that is awesome yeah it was it's a really interesting thing and you know when i was interested in when you think about a, a slightly more modern like um appalachian you know witchcraft and witch lore is you know superstitions and activities you did you know in the 40s and 50s and 60s we had a lot of people you know doing sort of like party games and parlor chicks and i know that my great-grandmother um what do you mean, like Ouija boards and stuff like that? Yeah, you had you know, like you had the seances and Ouija boards, and right. I, I know that my family didn't take part in that. My mom is very anti Ouija board, um, <laughs> but um, they would tell what we they would divine through c- decks of cards. So they would use playing cards, which is an old Pennsylvania Dutch actually tradition of uh, associating uh, meaning to the different cards, and then they would tell each other's fortune using those playing cards and i know that's something my grandmother took part in um because i would always find like just random playing cards that she would keep that had some kind of meaning to it um and when she so she she was a big herbologist her bedroom she had a really interesting bedroom and she had this really big walk-in closet about half the size of the room you're in now and um and it was filled with plants. It had it had a window inside of it, and like there was this big table at the end, and it was just stacked with plants. She was very into to growing things, not necessarily like crops, but just flowers and plants. And she had a rose bush that she loved that was on the side of our porch, and that she planted and she tended, and um, you know it was beautiful and it grew very well. Um, and when she died, my grandfather, um, cause they all lived together. My grandfather, who was her son-in-law, um, cut it down, um, almost all the way down to the stock. Um, but in, but it always grew back that, that bush is still, even though it's owned by someone else, it still exists there today because it cannot be getting, get, you know, you cannot get rid of it. And, um, even though he cut it back, he always was cutting it back. It would, if, if he wasn't paying attention, it would grow up and over our back porch and it would, um, like the, the, the roses would almost reach towards the door and a lot of times would encircle the chair that she liked to sit in. Oh my God. I love that. And, and so, um, you have that element of the earth, right? The, the roses, um, and this, and the, the ghost story, the spirituality, um, the next story I want to tell real quick, sure. Cause, cause you brought up kind of a plant woman. Mm-hmm. Um, were there a handful of, um, Appalachian specific plants that you've seen pop up in a lot of folklore? Are there a handful of plants that were really important for these, for plant lore and witch lore? There are. Um, but it is not something that I've studied and okay. I couldn't, I couldn't rattle it off off the top of my head, but okay, there, cool. there, if you want a list, I can get it to you. I can look at it. Um, I have studied it. I have read about, about it. And there are, there are some really interesting ones. Bloodroot being one of them. Oh right? yes. That's one that I'm very familiar with. Cause I'm, I've done a lot of illustration work for plant nonprofits and bloodroot is one of those, a handful of these, um, Appalachian botanicals that are kind of on becoming more rare as they're overused. So that's one of the ones that that herbal community um, really reveres. And it's talked about quite often alongside of ginseng and black cohosh. So that's very, so do you know anything more about the blood root? 
Uh, I can't remember okay. off the top of my head. It's not my area of expertise, but um, I know that it's um, you can. So when you crack it in half, it's incredibly bright red, and um, the liquid is, I guess, very potent. And you can put it on uh, moles that you don't like or warts you don't like, and it'll supposedly get rid of them. I've never tried this, but um, it's supposedly it's very strong. Like if you just put it on your skin, I guess it'll deteriorate the skin. But I can see how that would be one that would go into witch lore with that whole wart. Yeah, and, there there were a lot of poultices and a lot of I mean, there's a lot of native plants that were a part of it. There's a lot of non-native plants that we brought here, right? That are a part right. of it. I mean, my my grandmother and great grandmother always kept aloe plants in the kitchen okay. for burns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is is not like a astonishing thing, right? Because now we like now a lot of people use aloe for burns, right? But back then, I mean, they literally just cut the end of the plant off and squirted it on. Mm-hmm. Um, now we have it in bottles, right? Exactly Made for us. Um, um, so that is like, you know, kind of like a, a proof that those kind of some of those folk remedies work. Um, but they, they use a lot of folk remedies. I'm just not as familiar with the plants that they used as much, um, except, you know, um, I, you know, I think rhubarb was a, a mainstay. So there's, okay. there's rhubarb and there was um, bloodroot. And I think there's there's some kind of plant that has the word snake in it that was snake root is snake, one of them. Okay. Um, and uh, that was used a lot. Uh, and I mean, these poultices and um, a poultice is like a um, an herbal concoction usually used to draw out something mm-hmm. like poison or something bad on or in your skin or mm-hmm. in your blood um, was used for healing a lot. Um, I'm just not as familiar with that part of it. Yeah, um, there's one yarrow that you grind yarrow, up. Yeah, you spit on it, or and you and you grind it up, and you can put it right on an open wound, and it'll, I guess, cauterize is the word. I'm not sure, but it'll close that wound up real quick. And it's in a lot of people put it in their first aid kit. But, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, before you tell another story, sure. Do you, when you read these stories, do you believe them as fact, or do you just appreciate them with open? Um, with open curiosity and interest. So as a folklorist, um, the tack that I think many of us take and the tack that I certainly take is that I believe that the people who's telling me any story believes it. That was my next question. So, and we know, we actually know through real science that belief has power. Of course. Um, and so I think my belief in it is secondary if not important at all to the fact that they believe it that's how i felt with this podcast because the whole point of this numinous nature was to is people have been sharing these numinous like quite um personal and you know spiritually important stories in their lives and um i've just felt there's no room for any kind of judgment or anything like that i'm just listening to what happened to them and it's incredibly interesting and it was meaningful to them right and there's power in people's belief and and there's power in our acceptance of their belief mm-hmm. too. I, I believe what people say happened um, because I have no reason not to, and I don't gain anything from not believing them. I think it's easier to not believe people when they tell us, uh, like our first instinct when we hear something supernatural that we didn't experience is to not believe it, mm-hmm. right? Um, because we're trained not to believe anything we don't see or here with our own eyes and ears right um and i i i've had so many supernatural experiences that i feel even embarrassed to like bring up to other people Mm -hmm. just because it's hard for me to believe sometimes that i've experienced something so 
telling it to someone well, makes what, me feel foolish. That's oh, oh, interesting. Okay, but that's what makes me so unjudgmental about hearing other people's because I'm like, well, I've had all these super whacked out things happen. So if you're telling me you had something, I'm just interested. And I think we tend to open ourselves up. Like when we, when our minds are open to these experiences, we mm. tend to have more of them. Mm-hmm. I think people who have their mind closed to that sort of thing, their brain helps protect them from believing it's true, right? They find a way to explain away why something might have happened. And sometimes there are logical reasons behind some of the things we see in here. Um, but that that belief in the spiritual doesn't change that. And um, there are too many things in this world that science can't explain. 100%, without a doubt. So I, I am always open to hearing what anyone's experience is, and I always tend to believe them when they tell them to me. Mm-hmm. And again, like when I'm collecting folk, folklore, I, it's always on the basis of belief. It's always on the basis of they believe this. And belief shapes you. It shapes mm-hmm. who you are as a person. So, you know, if this if this is a belief you have, it's changed your life, um, whether or not it, whether it happened or not, doesn't really matter because you believe it did. Um, and and as, and you know, trained psychologists can tell you that, mm-hmm. right? Um, okay. Well, so you've got to go in thirty minutes. So I want you're going to tell a few more stories. Yeah, just but, a few. But before that just to get a few quick things down. Sure. Now what, okay, you told about the three types of witches in Appalachia. Where does the granny witch fit in there? And what is that? So the granny witch or the granny woman is is a term used often for an herbalist. Okay. Someone who was widowed. Typically it's a person who is widowed or on the outside of the community in some way. And not having children back in the day always was seen as um, as an other, right? Granny women are othered women. Interesting. They're they're women either without husbands through widowing or who never married. They often don't have children because they um, couldn't or didn't want them, and that is seen by their communities as different. So. Um, they are they are seen as an, an outskirt part of the of the community. A lot of granny women learned uh, had because because monetary um, success usually depended on men. Interesting, right? sure. Um, they had to find a way to make money without having a man, <laughs> and um, physically, m- many granny women could not run a farm. Let's say. Mm. Um, so they had to do other things. They had to take their knowledge of the land, which is er- which is typically herbal lore or folk magic, if you want to call it that, and and you know make up you know or, or create um, you know things that they could sell or barter for. Um, in Appalachia, it was much more of a barter system. I saw that. I read um, something that that they were you were talking about, and they were saying or you were saying that. Um, um, yeah, often you wouldn't pay in money, you'd pay in gifts. Right. So so you you bartered for things. She might need some eggs, so she might bring you um I mean she might bring you a rhubarb pie, right? Or she might bring you a potion to or you know, quote unquote potion, right? To to um cure um your baby's um col- uh you know, you know, colic, right? Mm. Um So she would kind of, would she fall into that white witch category? She would because okay. she's typically not. So the people who who were considered granny women were not considered like dark arts practices. Okay, but right. 
these people who were othered and on the fringes of society, um, they leaned into all of this hmm. witch hysteria, right? You want to believe that the herbal remedies that I put together is witchcraft, and you'll paint or you'll you'll barter me double for it. Great. You want to believe that I can put a curse on you? Even better, because I am a woman by myself, living alone, and can't protect my land and my property. Mm. Maybe in maybe in the same way as a man could. Although a lot of the Appalachian women I know could easily protect their property as well. Hell as a man yeah! Could. But as you grow older, you lose some of that ability, right? So these were older women who couldn't protect themselves. So you don't they they. That is so fascinating. Use this idea that they were dangerous. Yeah, this as, is fascinating. I would never have thought that. It's like they, they put up a "Don't tread on me" flag in front of their house. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a it's it's a way to protect themselves that they didn't even have to do. They just leave a, a couple little you know witchy clues around, and all of a sudden they get a reputation. And sometimes that reputation led to bad things happening. Right? Um, we saw you know we saw this in Salem. We saw this in other um, instances. They become the scapegoat. Where they become a scapegoat, where they get punished for their witchcraft mm -hmm. um, through hysterical Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, right? Um, but in Appalachia, the grand, like the thing about Appalachians, one of our Appalachian values are taking care of people in our community. Mm -hmm. um, and those community values, like you might. You might not like the granny woman, but if someone from out of town, like if someone from another state came in and tried to take her land, you would help protect her because she belongs to your community. She's a part of you, your extended network. Um, and so this was a way that they served their community and their society um, by delivering babies. Because, oh, okay. Um, so they were the... Um they were, they were, they were, they were, yeah, and mid, and there was lots of midwifery. midwifery. There was, there was all those kind of elements because Appalachia's rural. Mm -hmm. Back, back in the day when granny women were really like when you 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 know, like when they had their their heyday, let's say, you you couldn't get to a hospital fast enough to save your life most of the time. You couldn't get a host to the hospital fast enough to to have your baby. And back then, you really couldn't afford to have a baby. I mean, even even back then, you couldn't afford to have a baby in the hospital. Um, so that was something you did at home, um, surrounded by your family and hopefully a midwife of some kind, right? And a, a doula, a granny woman. These women served as um, matriarchs of the community, hmm. and they were they were an essential part of the community makeup. Because they 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 fulfilled a role. So would every holler have a granny woman? I would not say so, and I, mm. I would say that that practice sort of edged itself out as as we modernized, right? Mm. As TV and and radio really came to be more important part of our lives, as regional hospitals started to appear, mm. we see less and less in that. When that role is diminished, diminished, then they're just seen as like the woman who was at the the cat lady at the end of the street. Yes, she had nothing to offer her community anymore, mm. so she becomes just this estranged member of an eccentric. Society. Yeah, yeah, an eccentric. Um, not to say that all granny women were eccentric. I don't think they were. Mm. I think they knew used the traditional knowledge that all almost all Appalachians passed down to their benefit. Right. Interesting. Because so fascinating. Because knowledge like that is lost not completely but when it's trash you know passed down in traditions you lose a little bit at each time even in simple things like recipes when my mom transfer recipes to me she'll give me a recipe for she you know she's she she does a lot of 
kitchen magic. She makes great food. And when she passes the recipe down to me, she doesn't think to tell me the things that she alters in the recipe that makes it amazing. So she gives me the recipe piece by piece, but it doesn't taste the same as hers, Mm. right? Because she doesn't really put, you know, like a fourth of a teaspoon of salt. She shakes the salt in her hand and drizzles it over it to the amount she thinks is appropriate. Mm-hmm. This changes the taste, right? Mm-hmm. This change, the, the, the formula is changed from generation to generation, not only based on their own tastes, but also based on just the simple, you know, the observational practice. Like you're not going to do the, anything the same exact way as the people before you did it. Mm-hmm. Or we or we introduced modern technology like measuring cups into mm-hmm. it, right? Um, and so you you're we're changing it all the time. And I think I think some people had lost it sooner than the granny women. Like they were holding on to that tradition. They were passing it along. And so you might not know how to make the same poultices that they could make. And also they they also you know because people in West Virginia came from different root cultures, they had different traditions that they could call upon that maybe you know maybe a a germanic person could had something for warts that a northern irish person didn't Mm. right um so you have all these different um sects of people and so you have these different experiences that add into it so cool okay let's do this one quick so we can get to the story what's a blood stopper i read that in some of your writing okay so your lecture yeah, so um, so there was lots of ways to do blood stopping, um, but a blood stopping was a lot of times a witch doctor, or it could be a white uh, someone doing a white white witchery, and essentially it was somebody who would read um, passages. Even it, I we've seen it well in in Milne's and Gaynor's work. I, we even saw people who could do it over the phone, hmm. right? And so um, again, hospitals are rare doctors are harder to get to so when so when you you know your 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 teenage son cuts his hand in the field you can't get him to an emergency room so you called on blood stoppers and a lot of times they lived in the neighborhood right but there was someone who could use um different different ways some of which was um saying a certain set of words oftentimes scripture um, to to get the blood to stop to minimize and and sometimes they used um herbs or stones, but a lot of times it was just words. It was just words and compression. And we know that compression helps stop blood, right? Um, so why theirs worked faster, I don't, I, do, I can't say for sure. Um, I, uh, I have a tendency to believe in magic, but I also um, know from personal experience that when you are panicking, when something bad happens to you or a family member, your ability to think clearly is gone. When you bring in that outside professional, whether it be a doctor or a doula or a blood stopper, you you bring in someone who is clear, clear-headed, who can do what needs done fast and practiced. And so calm down, your heart slows. Right, right, absolutely. So and and I'm sure you've experienced people, you've been in the presence of people whose just their presence has affected you emotionally. Oh yeah. And and that's part of it, right? Um energy. Well we we know that energy exists, right? It, it's a scientific proven thing that that people give off energy, that we have energy inside us, that our cells are, you know are made up of energy. And and that energy like you can you can feel that power off of people. Sometimes. Oh yeah. We so we're we're getting a little dog next year and uh 
we've been watching this guy, Caesar Milan, and he's an amazing dog trainer. And he basically says, the dog is just reacting to the people. If you're all stressed out, the dog will be stressed out. So yeah, that's a very clear example of that. It, it, you'll see it very true in small children too, right? Yes, yes. Handing your crying baby to a certain person who you wouldn't think necessarily is a good baby person, but whose energy is very calm, right? They're not panicking about it. Or it's a practice mother who's held millions of crying babies. <laughs> and so, and they know that holding them tightly up against their body where they can hear your heartbeat, mm. you're slow and not panicked heartbeat, helps bring them back to this idea of the womb and it helps calm them, right? So, you know, folk magic and and lore about helping and healing is all about understanding the natural world, the world we live in and the natural bodies we live in. Mm. They were our first types of doctors, right? It was the first type of people who were interested in the body and why it works and how it works. Mm. So awesome. Okay. Do we have a few minutes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're okay. Okay, let's go for it. So um, there were two other stories that I want to tell that I haven't told yet. I've told most of them. One was told to me by Dr. Music and it's a, or I'm sorry, do, by Dr. Byers, but it's about Dr. Music and the power of belief. So in the 1970s, she was teaching her introduction to folklore class and um, she was collecting stories from people. And there was this girl in her class, and her hunk, her uncle was a truck driver. And back in in that those times in Fairmont, um, there was there were these area these warehouses where the trucks had to get to pick stuff up or deliver to by a certain time. And this is a variation of the Vanishing Hitchhiker story. Okay, so are you familiar with the Vanishing Hitchhiker? Okay, so uh, many TV shows and it, it happens a lot. You see this ghostly figure by by the road, but. In any case, this man, this truck driver comes along this young girl and she's sobbing and she's kind of in a pretty dress. Um, she's kind of dressed up for being out on an, an old dark road and um, being a nice person. He decides to pick her up and she asks him to take her to um, the hospital and it's raining out. So he put his jacket around her and she's covered in water. And so they're driving and um, to do this, they have to go over um, the East Fairmont, the, the, the bridge that, that, that connects East Fairmont to West Fairmont. And so they go across the bridge and um, she diverts him from the hospital and says she actually wants to go to the courthouse. So he pulls up to the courthouse, which, which is also where the jail was. And he's like, are you sure this is where you want to be? You don't want to be at the hospital, which was just a couple blocks away. And she's like, no, this is where I want to go. So... Um, she pulls, he pulls up to there and she said very little to her and he gets out of the truck and he goes around the truck to open the, the door for her. And when he pulls the door open, there's nothing there but his jacket and a pool of water. And he's freaked out, right? So he goes to take his stuff to, he takes his load to the, the trucking place, which is back across on East side. And he had to have it there by midnight. And um, he doesn't get there until 1230. Um, he actually, the girl disappears at midnight. And so it takes him almost half an hour to get to the place he needs to be. And his boss fires him. He says, you're late. And he tried to explain what happened, but he had no proof. She vanished. All his proof vanished. And um, his niece was in Dr. Music's class. So she calls Dr. Music in the middle of the night and tells her this story. So Dr. Music gets out of bed. She, she couldn't drive. She, um, she never drove herself anywhere. She gets out of bed. She has someone, a neighbor, come and take her to, 
to the the truck place um i think it was owing owing mills but i'm i I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. And she goes and she convinces the guy by telling him about all the other vanishing hitchhikers that we've had in this area um, to give the guy his job back because she so fully believed that he had seen what he had seen. So that I love that story because it is it shows the power of what folklore can do for people, right? It it saved his job. That is so cool. And and I and I really love that that's that story in particular. Um um, it's a it's a folks it's a folklore story about folklore. Um, I thought that the last thing, I well the last two things I would do is. Let's see. I mean that just speaks to that the community the community at large is open enough to folklore. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it shows that the tradition is strong enough in, in the everyday person mm-hmm. that that she was able to convince him mm-hmm. of what happened. Um, okay, so this one is called um, The Lock of Hair, and um, it was contributed by Sandra Voldeck-Stingo. She is a former Fairmont College student, and this was told to her by her grandfather. In Stonewood, West Virginia, up the street from my grandfather's shoe shop, lived a friend of the family, Mrs. Cantina. She had a beautiful daughter, Mary, who loved a fellow named Joe, but Joe didn't care for her. In late spring, Joe became very ill, but the doctors couldn't find anything wrong with him. He didn't feel like working or doing anything. His mother couldn't explain his condition. She took a pair of Joe's shoes to my grandfather. While my grandfather was taking the heel off, he found a lock of black hair. He told Joe's mother, and she said it must be some type of witchcraft, and maybe that's why he was so ill. In the following weeks, Joe improved. No one could explain the lock of black hair. Some people say that Mary's mother may have done that because Joe wouldn't marry her. To this day, Mary and Joe don't speak. He is happily married and has two children. It is said by some people that you can cast an evil spell on people with a a lock of hair. This is what Mary's mother may have done. It may be that Joe was very lucky that my grandfather found it in time to save his life. Mm. So that's an instance in which we see, um, we we do see um, the sort of temptress woman, but instead of sexualizing herself Mm. she she just takes ill to the man right Mm. um and it's you know the question is well did her mother do it did she do it um and whose hair was it was it mary's hair was it the mother's hair was it joe's hair um we're not quite sure but it's really interesting nonetheless do you think that witchcraft works because the i'm talking i guess for black magic uh do you think it works because the victim believes in the system that's that is a very um virulent theory right that um you have to believe in magic to have it work against you mm. um what, what word did you say virulent vir- uh, yeah i just mean? meant strong oh like strong it's a, okay it's a very like they're more popular um, okay i think i think i have i have definitely heard that theory um many times that you know you kind of have to believe in black magic for it to work against you mm. i'm not sure mm. that i believe that but i think that belief in black magic and its ability to make you sit like we know that we can like that psychosis is a thing that our psychological well-being affects our physical well-being that's 
that's been proven through science too, right? Um, so I think it could be easily extrapolated that that if you believe that you've been cursed, you will become sicker and sicker by the curse, or 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 be eas- more easily damaged. I think it I think it goes towards that idea of being open to it, like mm. we see more and experience more because we're open to the idea of it. And I think if you're open to the idea of it, you do, um, you can't, I, I think you could make yourself a bigger target um, because when you notice this, I, I, I have, I have just the belief that when you see that, when you know the spirit world is there, the spirit world knows you're there. Mm. And I think that kind of connection to it, like when you, it, there's it, that famous quote, when you stare into the void, the void looks back at you or something like that. I think it's uh, Nisha, a- abso- however you say his name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely and and you know like you it's it it goes along to the principle like that everyone has we have we have these fears um that we can and do sometimes give into think of like walking through a place that is really dark that you're kind of scared of and you don't look back because you're afraid of what you might see and you don't see anything because you don't look back. Or as children, we believed we were safe under our covers, even though no logical reason would Mm -hmm. be that our covers would protect us from anything that was out there. But the moment you turn back and look, and this goes all the way back to to Lot, right? And his wife turning into a salt of pilter or her looking back and him turning into a a pillar of salt or whatever. It, 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 it sort of goes back to this idea of when you look back behind you to see what's behind you into the darkness, you know, like that is the moment when something comes after you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have this primordial fear of the dark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think in, in association, the unknown, but there is something in my system that when I turn all the lights off in the, ha- in the house and I'm closing my bedroom door at night and I can't see anything beyond it, I have this fear and this this desire to close the door as quickly as possible. Mm. And that's instinctual. That has nothing to do with me. I, I don't think that has anything to do with me as a person so much as it is to like our hereditary instinct to protect ourselves from the unknown and the dark, right? Because mm-hmm. that's where the predators were, mm-hmm. right? We evolved to know that the dark was a place where we could get hurt, right? Because mm-hmm. um, what we can't see um, can easily hurt us. Super, super cool. Okay, well, we got to wrap it up, right? Yeah, absolutely. This I, has been an amazing I, conversation. Is there anywhere that you want to send people to learn more about your work or... Absolutely. So, um, so uh, the West Virginia Gabor Folklife Center at Fairmont State University has um, a lot of amazing um, items um, that you can actually you can you can purchase and you can actually go and just research yourself. You can see the archives. You can we have a, a working library there of West Virginia literature. Um, a lot of um, the work that I talked about and the stories that I read are in Traditions, which is a journal of West Virginian folk culture and educational awareness, which the Folklife Center sells. Okay, cool. Um, there are, I think are fourteen volumes of the journal now, and they're just filled with um, great um, folk folklore, um, folk tales. Um, teaching um, aids and all kinds of interesting things. So I would definitely check those out. Anything um, that was written or produced by Dr. Judy Byers um, is is good work, um, and and that would that would largely be um, her textbook in the Mountain State, which talks all about folklore in West Virginia, all the way from language down to material culture and and ghost tales. Um, 
that can be got in the center. You can get Patrick Gainers, which is Ghost and Signs, and Gerald Milne's um, Signs, Cures, and Witchery. I saw this on both Amazon. on Amazon. Yeah, um, those are both um, you know terrific pieces of work. And um, the the traditional journal, the traditional journal that talk that that has my um, information on witch lore is um, Volume Twelve. Okay, cool. So I have a um, an essay in there on witch lore, uh, probably what you read, and maybe I found it online. Where online did you find it? I found it? like Mountain place? Mystics and then a handful of other stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, so there, there's definitely places to look. Um, I just wanted to enclose and telling you one personal experience thing that happens oh, to me. Oh, please. Crystals are something that a lot of spiritual people have adopted into their practice. Um, that were not a part of uh, Appalachian witchery, but um, I always did a lot. I I have a big fear of driving, so I've always done a lot to protect my vehicles when I'm in them. And I happened to have um, a dried um, rosebud, uh, dried rose, the top of a dried rose in my car, which someone had given to me, um, someone special had given to me, and I had a citrine crystal that um, was about the size of my fist which I kept in my car at all times. And I actually think it was in my, my, um, one of my cup holders, um, when this happened, but I traveled back and forth a lot to, um, to school at WVU, um, at that time from Fairmont. And, um, uh, there's this area, um, on the interstate, um, uh, um, where everybody always wrecks and I hydroplane there and my car lifted, lifted up off the ground and I spun um, and then went backwards off the side of the of the road and into there was no guardrail there so I was just um, up and then a, into the ditch beside like a big hill or the side of the mountain like the side of the mountain or whatever when it was happening and there there I'm sure there was some centrifugal force that's like applicable to this the the rosebud um, lifted up out of my cup holder and exploded and like the petals just went all throughout the car and um and the car was totaled um the only part that wasn't destroyed was the part i was sitting in and um so it ended up i had to crawl out my my door um actually a truck driver stopped and helped me because i had to be pulled out of the car um and i wasn't hurt at all like not a scratch on me didn't even have to go to the hospital um he said he watched my car lift up off the ground like because when you're hydroplaning your wheels sort of just lift up and he said he saw it happen but after when we went and collected everything the citrine crystal we never found and it was not a small crystal it was it was the size of my fist almost and it it was just gone we never found it in any of the pieces that we recovered from it. and we recovered all my belongings from it except there was a for some reason I had an empty aquarium in my trunk and that got broken up but but other than that we got everything out of the car um, and and it, we never found any parts of it I, I truly believe that the protections that you know that, that that rosebud and that citrine crystal really saved my life that day. Hell yes. I'm glad you're alive. Thanks. I'm glad you're not banged up. (laughs) This has been so cool. And I think this is going to be the first of a bunch of doing my interviews with folklorists. And so I hope to start a relationship with that folklore um, center. 
Yeah, absolutely. And there are tons of great folklorists. If you're interested in the land, I have two really interesting people who um, who've done a lot of folklore work in Virginia. Oh, great. Specifically on... That's where um, I'm at. I'm in Virginia. Yeah, you had mentioned that. And they they did it on... Um, it, it's agricultural based, and I think it was on apple orchards. Okay. And apple picking. So it okay. has some food weight elements to it. A little less spiritual, but I, I think that there are... A little less ghostly, but definitely interesting. Okay. Hey, thank you so much. <laughs>